We're going to turn to God's Word now and to Mark's Gospel, a passage that you'll know well, but let's read it and think about it together. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 12 verses. Mark chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and we're just at the start of the New Testament here. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Mark chapter 2, verse 4. That's a small number 4 for verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. And there, the end of verse 12. Well, let's turn to God's word together and to Mark chapter 2. A really familiar passage of scripture, these first 12 verses. It was said of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that whenever he came to preach, he invariably said to the congregation almost every week, this is the most important passage in the Bible. This is a passage of scripture that you have to understand, that you have to know, and you have to get to grips with. Well, I certainly am not even in the same universe as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as a preacher. No way. But I feel like saying that tonight whenever you come to Mark chapter 2. I feel like saying this is a passage of the Bible that you have to know well. This is one of these purple passages that as a young person, if you get the grips with this passage, if you really just understand this passage of the Bible, we're going places. Because the truths that were within Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12, you'll find yourself just coming back to them again and again and again. And it's a vital passage to get your head around. If you're a young person, you need to understand it. Maybe you're an older person. It's a passage you need to understand. It's going to direct and decide so many of the decisions you make. As a church, Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12, it's going to decide so many of the decisions you make as a leadership in this church. This is an important passage. And I have three points. Again, great to see the young people here. Thank you so much for coming. And I hope that you're able to just track with me. I know sometimes I talk quick. I know sometimes I maybe say words that are hard to understand. But I have three points tonight. I'm going to tell you them. And when you go home, you can test your mum or dad and see if they know them. Here's my three points. The greatest need you have. That's the first one. Here's the second one. The greatest person you can meet. And the third one, 
the greatest mistake you can make. So young people, when you go home, see if you can remember them. The greatest need you have, the greatest person you can meet, and the greatest mistake you can make. Well, let's get into this passage, this really important passage, a purple passage. Let's look at some of the context here in Mark chapter 2. It says there, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. So many gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door. So Jesus has turned up in Capernaum, and there's an incredible crowd. Why is this crowd here? Why is this crowd coming to see Jesus? I mean, for 30 years, Jesus was a carpenter. There's only one reference, I think, to Jesus and his carpentry skill in the New Testament. I wonder if you know where it is. It's in John's Gospel. There's a clue. But for 30 years, crowds of people didn't come to see Jesus. Jesus lived his life fairly anonymously. But now there's crowds of people coming to Jesus. If we just turn back to chapter 1, just follow with me there, and verse 21. We find that Jesus is the first time in Capernaum. It says they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. That day, Mark chapter 1 verse 21, Jesus healed two people. Verse 32, just look at it, just scan down in chapter 1. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Verse 33 and the whole city was gathered together at the door. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So this is what's happening in Capernaum. I mean, let's just think about it. Jesus is in Balamina, and he's touching people and they're being healed. Jesus makes his way to Antrim, the biggest hospital, just walks down the wards. You've been to Antrim Hospital? You spent some time in Antrim Hospital? You visited people in Antrim Hospital? Jesus comes along, just says, okay, you can go home now. Young people with cancer, leukemia, older people, heart conditions, senior people, in their own mind, they're not clear. And Jesus just comes along and says, okay, you're healed. Go on home. People just get up their bed and walk out. Then Jesus makes his way up to Coleraine, goes to the hospital across Dalton the Galvin, goes back down to Fermanagh, and then he comes back into Belfast, goes to Royal, goes to the city, goes to all those hospitals. Can you imagine how many people are in hospital tonight who would love somebody to come along and just say, right, go on home? I mean, it really concentrates your mind whenever there's something wrong with you. There will come a day when we will be sick and we will be sick for the last time. But Jesus is bringing about healing. What would happen in Northern Ireland if there was real healing? Everybody from the south, everybody from England, Scotland, Wales, they'd be coming into Northern Ireland, trains, planes, and automobiles. Every airport would be bunged, and people would be flying in from all over the world. That's what would happen. If there was healing to be found, people would be paying any amount of money. They'd be going to any expense. They would just be going where they could help somebody, and you'd be exactly the same. You know I would be exactly the same. The people that I know that are not well, the young people I know, I'd be driving them there. I was uh, speaking to a girl the other week. I spoke to her when she was just a child. It tells you how old I'm getting. I was preaching. She recognized me. I didn't recognize her. And she said to me, would you pray for my father? Just before Christmas, December the 9th, he took a fall. He thought he was dizzy, only a man in his 50s. 
massive brain tumor. They operated on him in the start of January. And whether he lives or whether he dies, the doctors are unsure what's going to happen. Only in his 50s. And she said, look, would you just pray for my dad? Pray for my dad. If only a wee boy myself, he's only a year old, would love my wee boy to grow up and be able to know my dad. And her heart's just broken. And that's what would happen, isn't it? And that's what was happening in the first century. People were flocking to Jesus. People were by any means possible to get to Jesus because Jesus was healing people. And it was just with a word. I mean, it wasn't that somebody had like a sore fingernail. It says various diseases. That's the words that Mark uses. Various diseases, serious illnesses. But what does Jesus do? Just look at verse 2 of chapter 2. So many gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door. These people are coming to Jesus. These people are flocking to Jesus. It's plainly obvious. You don't get a prize for knowing what they want. They want healing. But what does Jesus do? Now notice that. It says he preached the word to them. And that's actually what Jesus has consistently been doing in Mark's gospel. And verses uh, 14 and 15 of chapter 1, it says, Jesus went around Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And verse 21, that first Sabbath in Capernaum, it says Jesus began to teach. And verse 35, Jesus has been healing people late into the night. How many times did Jesus go away by himself and pray? There are a couple of significant times in the New Testament where Jesus went away. He went away to a desolate place, often late at night, often up a mountain, and he prayed. Not with the disciples by himself. There were three times he did that. You can know them. The Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is there and he's praying. He's preparing to go to the cross. Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes away and prays. That's when he sends the disciples out onto the sea. And Jesus goes away and prays at that time because the people are going to make him king. And he hasn't come to be that kind of king. So he goes away and prays. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes away and prays. These people are flocking to Jesus. They want something now. They want the kingdom now. They want God's help now. They want things changed now. They want everything removed. And we can understand that. And Jesus, because of his grace and his power, he heals people. But Jesus hasn't come as a miracle worker supremely. Jesus has come as a preacher. And Jesus has come to die so that there's a message to be preached. And you find that consistently in Mark's gospel. Jesus isn't looking to publicity. When those demons are cast out, what did it say in verse 40? See that you don't tell anyone. And the crowds are flocking to Jesus. And we come into Mark chapter 2. And the crowds are flocking to Jesus. And Jesus is in a house. And we can imagine it's absolutely jam-packed and everybody wants to get close to Jesus. And we can relate to that. And Jesus is in the house and Jesus is speaking to the people. And there's no room. Well, then we would say the, the roof caves in. I don't know how deep it was, the roof. It was probably packed of earth, sticks across. It says there in Mark in English, they took off the roof. I don't know how much of the roof they took off. And if it had been me, I would have just put the man down like a wardrobe. We made a wee bit of a hole. His head and shoulders to go down. I mean, Jesus is hopefully going to heal this man. So I would have just couped him in anyway. If he broke an arm, what odds? He was going to be before Jesus. If Jesus could fix the legs, he could fix an arm. So Jesus has this man straight before him. And he's four friends. I love the four friends. 
This man had four friends who were determined to bring him to Jesus. The man in John's gospel, in John chapter 5, what did he say to Jesus in verse 21? He said, Jesus, I don't have any friends. I don't have any friends that are going to help me. But the man in Mark chapter 2 had four friends. We all want friends. We want good friends. And probably for you, there's a couple of people, two, three, four, five people that you count as really good friends. Let me ask you, are you a good friend to somebody? Because a good friend is somebody who will take you to Jesus Christ. And this man has four friends. And these friends are determined. They have faith. They're prepared to take a risk. They're prepared to go and to push. And they're prepared to even take off a roof to get their friend to Jesus. They're real friends to this man. Are you that friend? And they take him determinedly. They take him and nothing's going to stop him. They say, we want you to get to Jesus. So they open up the roof. They lower him down or cope him down. And there he is. He's right before the Lord Jesus. And he would have looked up. And I imagine what he was thinking, this is a man that's not walking. This is a man who's paralyzed. We don't know what happened to him. Did he get injured at work? Was he up a ladder and he fell off it, broke his back? Was he born this way? We're not told, but he's not walking. What a terrible thing to be unable to walk in our day and age. Well, imagine 2,000 years ago. And now he's before Jesus and Jesus has been healing people. And he looks up and he sees Jesus' face and then Jesus speaks to him. And whenever Jesus speaks to him, Jesus identifies in that moment, in that second, the greatest need that there is. Just look at it there in verse 5. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. What's the greatest need in this world? The greatest need in this world is forgiveness. And what we find here in Mark's gospel is that only Jesus gives forgiveness. It's only Jesus that can cleanse us of our sins. And Jesus looks at this man and Jesus knows all about this man. And Jesus looks at this man and he sees his sickness. He sees his illness. He sees his infirmity. He sees the needs that this man has. Jesus is not blind to what this man needs. Jesus is not blind to why this man has specifically come. He cannot walk and he's been brought for healing. But Jesus looks at this man and I want you to get the centrality of what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus is teaching us that the greatest need in this world, that the greatest need in your life and in my life is forgiveness. To know where sins washed away. Sometimes you can listen to psychiatrists. I, I've listened to Jordan Peterson, maybe a name familiar to you. Jordan Peterson says this for so many people, in fact, half the people that he would counsel, he said half of them wouldn't be there if they were able to deal with their guilt and they were able to deal with their mistakes. Because it just gnaws away at them and they can't get over the things that they've done wrong. They try and push it away and they try and suppress it. But in the back of their mind, they always remember. And so they go to him for counseling. And what can he do? He can only talk to them. How do you deal with your guilt? How do you deal with your mistakes? How do you deal with your sin? You can't deal with it. There's nothing you or I can do. But Jesus is the one that speaks into it. And Jesus says, I'm the one that forgives sins. Sometimes you can say something glib or trivial. You meet somebody, you're walking down Ballymena High Street and you meet somebody you haven't saw in a while and you've forgotten their name and so you try to say something funny and you say something and you say, oh, it was so stupid, I put my foot in my mouth. Why did I say that silly thing for? You know, somebody catches you off guard and 
Maybe we think, well, Jesus was just caught off guard. Jesus wasn't caught off guard. Jesus knew all about this man. Jesus knew that this man was a sinner and Jesus knew that for him to be forgiven, he would have to die for his sin. I mean, as this man was lowered, Jesus knew that he was going to be raised. Jesus knew that this man's sin would only be forgiven by his own sacrifice on the cross. And so whenever Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven you, it wasn't that Jesus was just saying something pithy. Jesus knew that he was the one who was going to pay for sins. He was going to shed his blood. Well, how do we think about this? Well, we must think about it personally. Your greatest need and my greatest need is forgiveness. For your family members, for the people in your home and household, from the youngest to the oldest, their greatest need is forgiveness. What about broader than that? What about as a church? What about as a denomination? What is our trajectory? Because Mark chapter 2 is such an immensely helpful passage of Scripture. I remember one of the first summer outreach teams I did. I'm not going to tell you where it was because you'll go home and you'll open the blue book and you'll figure this all out. But one of the first summer outreach teams I did was to a Presbyterian church in the south of Ireland. And we were there and we were doing a week's activities. And I remember very distinctly, we put on a night for all the young people in that area, a games night for all the young people in that area. And at that games night, we finished with an epilogue, a really clear gospel epilogue. The minister of that church sent a letter, a typed up letter to the team leader. And it said this, if you're inviting young people to a games night, just leave it as a games night. You don't need to add on that epilogue at the end. Just leave it and invite them to a games night. I fundamentally disagree. We're not there for entertainment. We're there for gospel ministry. We're not there just to fill in time and entertain children, as good as a thing as that is to do. We're there to see them saved. We want to know their sins forgiven because you can be absolutely sure we're going to be bringing the gospel. Sometimes when I was younger, I went to a social. I don't know if you've ever been to a social. I don't know if buck now, that's a bad word or a good word, but a social to me was always a good bit of crack. And you can remember that time kind of coming up to me. Some of you are laughing. I know you probably found your husband or wife at a social. So I know I'm on safe ground here. But I remember there was always about that time coming up to, you know, closing time of the social. And there'd always be everybody was brought in and there'd be an epilogue. And sometimes I would have heard people saying, you know, Christians can have fun without a wee epilogue. Christians can have fun. You know, we're just trying to show people fun. We don't need to talk about Jesus. But fundamentally, we were there not for the social. We were fundamentally there because we wanted people to hear about Jesus. And so any excuse that we could have to bring people together to tell them about Jesus Christ, you can be sure we were going to do it. And if that meant bringing an epilogue, that's what we were going to do. We were going to bring a short message of 15 minutes to share the gospel. They were saying, oh, Christians, you know, your reputation is you're boring. We don't need to worry about our reputation. The Lord will look after our reputation. The Lord will look after what everybody else says about us. Our job is to have our priorities right. And Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, helps you get your priorities right. remember talking with Simon Manchester, a minister over in Australia. Simon Manchester told me this story. He said that there was a significant leader of a world, a world mission organization came to his church, an incredibly busy man. If I said his name, you would definitely know it. He said that that man who was over a huge mission organization came to his church and after the service he spoke to Simon and he said, Simon, the direction of our organization is going to change. 
We're throwing all of our people and we're throwing so much of our resources now into HIV AIDS. And Simon Manchester turned to him and said, that's a very good thing to do. But you're saying that people take up your mat and walk and Jesus Christ to them said, your sins are forgiven. And Simon Manchester told me that that was a significant organization with, or a significant conversation with that man and the direction of his organization. Because Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 helps us get our priorities straight. It helps you get your priorities straight in your own heart. It helps you get your priorities straight in your home, in your church, in your denomination. And we're Presbyterians here and there are many things that we get wrong and there are many things that we could do an awful lot better. But we want to come back to Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 and we want to say, what are our priorities? Because our priority has to be Jesus' priority. And Jesus looked at this man and he knew everything about him. And he said, your greatest need is forgiveness. That's the first thing. The greatest need that you have. Here's the second thing. The greatest person that you can meet. This is a passage that speaks to us about identity. I know Stephen has preached through Mark's gospel maybe previously. One of the themes that he has talked to you about is that in Mark chapter 2, and in these early chapters of Mark, Jesus is revealing who he is. He's identifying himself. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, Jesus speaks to these religious leaders. They say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These people have heard Jesus speak about forgiveness and they say, you shouldn't be saying that. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus is trying to draw these men's attention to the fact that he is God. He's trying to draw their attention to the fact that they might know exactly who he is. And so he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk? Now just follow Jesus' logic. This is the place I might lose you, so please stick with me. It's easy to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say that, but it's difficult to prove it. You don't change color when you become a Christian. You don't levitate. You don't turn green. But if somebody, if somebody can't walk and you say to them, be healed, well, it's plainly obvious they're either going to be healed or they're not going to be healed because you can see it if they sit there, if they get up and walk. And Jesus says, look, if I speak a word of forgiveness, you'll know that's true if I also speak a word of healing and it turns out to be true. Jesus is saying, if I can do this, the healing, then you'll know I can also bring about the forgiveness. So that's what he says in verse 10. But that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and walk. Jesus is saying, so that you may know who I am. I'm going to do this miracle. This man is going to be healed, not for a magic show but so that you'll know who I am. We are praying on that first prayer from Daniel chapter seven. And I read it and you can go home and maybe just double check exactly what I read. But Daniel has that vision. He says, if one like a son of man came who had dominion and sovereignty and power and glory, one who was calling people from all tribes and all nations to himself. And Jesus, whenever he takes that phrase upon himself and says, so that you may know the son of man has authority, Jesus is saying, I'm that son of man. 
I am that one. I'm the one that Daniel spoke about. The Son of Man is not telling us about Jesus' humanity. The Son of Man is telling us about Jesus' deity. And the greatest person that you can meet is the Lord Jesus, the God-man. And Jesus wants to introduce us to him right here in this passage so that you may know. And then the third and final thing, not just the greatest need that you have or the greatest person you can meet. Here's the third and final thing, the greatest mistake that you can make. Let's just look at that verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, that's maybe the response that you would expect, utter amazement. I mean, this man couldn't walk. He was lowered in in a stretch or just lowered in before Jesus. He was clearly paralyzed. And now he's gathered together his mat and he's just walked out the door. But even as I read this passage, and even as I particularly read that verse 12, there's something kind of gnawing at me. There's something, that's, there's something that catches me when I read it. It says they were all amazed and, and glorified God and, and said, you know, praise God, this man's been healed. But we want, I want more than that. Instead of saying we never saw anything like this, what about saying we never saw anyone like this? Instead of saying, isn't this miracle amazing? Isn't this healing amazing? The whole point of the passage is that you might come to know Jesus and the forgiveness that's in Jesus. Because so often you find that people are amazed at the things that Jesus can do. They look back and they say, isn't that incredible? Jesus healing all these people in the first century. Jesus doing these amazing things. But it's not so that you'll be amazed and say, isn't that incredible? It's so that you'll come to Jesus and say, isn't he incredible? He's the one that I want to know. Maybe you've been praying for healing in your own life. Maybe you've been praying for your family members and just longing that the Lord would touch them. And he may do that. He may, I don't know. But even if he doesn't, and even if the healing in this life does not come, the great need is not that you would be amazed at the things that Jesus is doing, but the great need is that you would know Jesus. And the greatest mistake that you can make is that you would be amazed at some of the things Jesus would do. You would even get your attention captivated by the things that Jesus would do, but you miss knowing Jesus. So let me ask you, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him as the one who forgave your sins? Let me finish by telling you a true story. I was preaching in a mission along with Trevor Matthews. And I was pre preaching in a Presbyterian church. It's quite a way away from here. And we preached for the fortnight. And Trevor, as you know, is a fantastic preacher. And I was really privileged to be joined with Trevor in that mission. But there, were, there, were, there was nobody came forward. There was nobody who came forward to talk to us. We were offering that journey into life book. We were, we were offering two ways to live book. We were asking people, look, if God's moving in your life, if God's speaking to you, come and speak to us. And for so many nights, nothing happened. And then there was this one man. There was this one man came forward. And he was an older man. He was in his mid to late 70s. And he came and he spoke to us. And he said, I'm a church attender. 
And I sit in the pew in that church and I've sat there for years. And he said to me, he said, I'm not sure I'm right with the Lord. I'm not sure I'm right with the Lord and I want you to talk to me. Because I want to know where I stand with God. And he was the only one that came forward to that mission to talk to us. And whenever I spoke to that man and talked to that man, I opened up Mark chapter 2. And I said, that's great that you come along to church and I know that you contribute and I know that you support and I know you turn up on coffee mornings and I know you're involved in much in the church, but the greatest need that you would have would be your sins forgiven. And I spoke to him about what Jesus has done on the cross, a message he had heard many times, and we prayed together. And that man was such an encouragement. He came to every night of the mission. And he talked to myself and he talked to Trevor and he would speak to us and he said, you're really helping me here. You're really helping me get this. And I've heard it, but the Lord's been working in my life. Well, the whole mission was worth it. It was worth it, I tell you, a million times over just that one man. I was back speaking in that church just before Christmas. And I said to the minister, well, how's he getting on? He said to me, Six weeks after that mission finished, and he named the man, he said he started to feel very unwell. So he went to the doctor, had a number of tests done, and he was diagnosed with cancer. He says, you're preaching here tonight. And he said, he's in the local hospital. He named the hospital to me. After the service was over, I went to the hospital, and I managed to get in. The nurses were more than gracious late at night. He went and spoke to that man. He says, there's nothing they can do for me. They're not going to be able to help me. And opened up the Bible and it opened up to Mark chapter 2 again. Opened up this passage that is so helpful. And I spoke to him and I said, you know, the Lord Jesus has dealt with your greatest need. The Lord Jesus has worked in your life. And I'm praying that this cancer, they'll be able to do something for you. I'm praying they might be able to find something, be able to treat you or something. He says, it's all through me. He says, well, I'm going to pray anyway that the Lord will touch you. But I said, the Lord has already dealt with your greatest need. Do you remember back at the mission time when you talked to us? He said, yes and no. And then as we talked on and we talked on, we talked about what heaven would be like. And you know what he said to me? And this is a bit that stuck with me. As we talked about how Jesus has met his greatest need and forgiveness, and he would have assurance of where he was going. He just looked me in the face lying in that hospital bed, and his eyes just lit up, and he said to me, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there someday. That man has went to be with the Lord. He died in January. But his greatest need was dealt with when he went to Jesus Christ and he asked for forgiveness. And he's more alive now than he was when he was on earth because he is with the Lord Jesus because Jesus forgave his sins. And I just think about even the man here in our passage in Mark chapter 2. Can you imagine what happened to him? Can you imagine? I mean, maybe, maybe he was got his legs working. And then he got married. He got a job. Had a few children, lived to a ripe old age, was in his 90s, nearly at 100. What about that man today? What about that man in today when he's with the Lord Jesus? Today he'll be with me in paradise. And I wonder if that man who I met at the mission has met the man in Mark chapter 2, the passage that I read to him twice. And he said, you know, that passage came before me. And I praise God that the Lord Jesus dealt with my greatest need, which is to know forgiveness. So let me speak to you. Has your greatest need be dealt with? Are you sure that Jesus Christ has forgiven your sin? Maybe you're watching online. We love you watching online. But you need to know Jesus as your Savior and King. So have you done that? Can I just invite you? 
If you want to speak, your minister's here. He'd be delighted to talk to you. I've known Stephen a long time, and whether you call him early in the morning or late at night, he'll be around to talk to you if he can help you in any way. Sometimes it's easier talking to a stranger. If you want to talk to me, no problem. But the one that you need to talk to more than anyone is the Lord. And you need to speak to him. You need to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to deal with my sin and I want to know your forgiveness. I want to know that assurance of walking with you and knowing you in my life. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for all that you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus came and he preached and he healed and he ministered to people. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus died on the cross and there he paid for all of our sins. Father, I thank you for all those in Bucknell here in the church building and watching at home and ask that you might minister to each one of us. Father, as we have gathered in here tonight, we've gathered around your word, the Bible. We thank you that we've gathered around that, that word that is food to our souls. And so, Father, let there be that there's a word, something to eat for each one of us here tonight that we might take it in and we might be changed and transformed by it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.